Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Welcome to Beth Kuhn and our ongoing study of the Torah. I'm Tim Pell, and I'm glad you're here. This week, we're not in a Torah portion, actually, but I do want to share a few thoughts with you about what we are in the middle of, and that's Sukkot. Next week, we'll finish up this year's Torah cycle as I attempt to find the connective tissue between the last portion, Vezot HaBracha, and the first portion, Bereshit, that begins the cycle all over again. So wish me luck there. (laughs) Hopefully, you've all been experiencing the joy of Sukkot either in your own sukkah or in someone else's. This is a very special time of year, my favorite, in fact, and I just want to share my thoughts on an aspect of Sukkot that comes back to me this year before this seven-day festival comes to an end. There's a popular category of videos on social media, usually titled, People Meeting for the First Time After a Long Time, or something like that. We've all seen them. A father is sitting in his recliner, unsuspecting, as his wife records him. Then we see his son, on leave from the military, or something like that, come out from the dining room, and the father is stunned and instantly weeps. Or a sibling who is walking along, unaware that her big brother has come to see her after years apart. And when she sees him, she collapses in tears, like the flip of a switch. One moment, they're just doing their thing, the next the floodgate of their feelings bursts open and they can't hold it back. Something has been building up during their time apart that is let go of in an instant. What is that other than the deep release of the soul that purges it to make room for joy? During the 10 days of awe, the days between Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur, a time of introspection and repentance, we are stripped of everything, all that we have been clinging to and that had built up over the previous year. Now in our lightness, we are reduced down to not much more than a puddle, the puddle of our potential, let's call it. We are at the beginning again, and we begin to rebuild a simple structure, intentionally not quite complete, made up of only the essential parts. The sukkah is the idea of a house, and in it, our very essence, the core of our being, is exposed to the elements, to the world, and to God. We are more truly and deeply ourselves now than at any other time in the year, and we are more secure and aware of that security than at any other time in the year. Even in these booths, that acknowledged they couldn't possibly be the basis of our security. It would be odd if it weren't so perfect. And while the outside world is more within our reach, sitting in our sukkah, quite literally, you can move your hand out and it's outside, joy is also easier to grasp. Because joy, I believe, is achieved after we have opened ourselves up, stripped our souls down. Once we've made ourselves vulnerable, we have given joy fertile soil in which to grow. And we are to be joyful during Sukkot. Sure, we're to be joyful during all the feast days, but there is an extra measure of joy available at Sukkot. 
While we certainly rejoice on Pesach or Passover, it is not a full joy. Springtime is a time of hope that we don't quite know if there will be a harvest. Uh, We rejoice at Shavuot, but the harvest is still early, and so our rejoicing is tentative. At Sukkot, however, the harvest has fully come. There is no uncertainty, no anxiety. There is only rejoicing. Think back to the moments in your life when you have felt deep joy. I think it's safe to say that it didn't happen in a vacuum and that it was preceded by one of a number of strong emotions. Pain, heartache, loss, anger, fear, longing, and so on. The psalmist writes, Sing praise to Adonai, you faithful of his, and give thanks on recalling his holiness. For his anger is momentary, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Tears may linger for the night, but with dawn come cries of joy. Joy is a deep release of the soul, and it always arrives on the heels of our pain. Traditionally, Sukkot is called the time of our joy. But why? Let's dig into this for a moment and see what we can find. I've identified five reasons, though there are certainly more, why this is called the time of our joy, and I'd like to go through them briefly one by one. My hope is that you may relate to one or a few of them this year. So, reason number one, the Bible says so. In Leviticus 23, verses 39 to 40, we read, So on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruits of the land, you are to keep the festival, the feast of Adonai for seven days. The first day is to be a Shabbat rest, and the eighth day will also be a Shabbat rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit of the trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before Adonai your God for seven days. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 to 15 states, You are to keep the Feast of Sukkot for seven days after gathering in the produce from your threshing floor and wine press. So you will rejoice in your feast, you, your son and daughter, slave and maid, Levite and outsider, orphan and widow within your gates. Seven days you will feast to Adonai your God in the place he chooses, because Adonai your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hand, and you will be completely filled with joy. In the book of Nehemiah, we read of how Nehemiah gathered the people on Rosh Hashanah and had Ezra read to them about the day. Once they understood that holiday and understood to observe it, Then the next day, Ezra told the leaders about Sukkot so that they could start getting ready for the holiday. When Sukkot came, the people observed it with great joy. Nehemiah 8.17 reads, The entire assembly who had returned from the captivity made Sukkot and dwelt in the Sukkot. Since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, B'nai Yisrael had not done so, and the joy was very great. Reason number two, the joys of giving, community, and sharing with others. I'm sure we can agree that there is much more joy to be had when we give or share than there is when we receive. 
Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes in his book, To Heal a Fractured World, the ethical life is a form of celebration. Doing good is not painful, a matter of our duty and a chastising conscience. The key term here is simcha, usually translated as joy. What it really means is the happiness we share, or better still, the happiness we make by sharing. Sachs also writes in Collective Joy 5779, share your happiness with others and in the midst of that collective celebration, serve God. Blessings are not measured by how much we own or earn or spend or possess, but by how much we share. Simcha is the mark of a sacred society. It is a place of collective joy. Again, in Deuteronomy 16, 13 states, you will rejoice in your feast, you, your son and daughter, slave and maid, Levite and an outsider, orphan and widow within your gates. In other words, you will do it in the presence of others, from within your household and from without. The sages say, when one eats and drinks, one must feed the stranger, the orphan and the widow, along with the rest of those who are in need. The one who locks the gate of their courtyard and eats and drinks with their family and doesn't provide food and drinks for those who are in need, this is not the joy of a mitzvah, but rather just the joy of a full belly. Reason number three, the joy of having enough. Deuteronomy 28 verses 48, or 47 to 48 reads, Instead of serving Adonai your God with joy and goodness of heart out of the abundance of everything, you will serve, uh, you will serve your enemies whom Adonai will send against you. In other words, avoid the curse by serving God with joy from your abundance. In Perkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, 4 verse 1, we find the following. Ben Zoma says, Who is the wise one? He who learns from all men. As it says, I have acquired understanding from all my teachers. Psalm 119.99. Who is the mighty one? He who conquers his impulse. As it says, Slowness to anger is better than a mighty person and the ruler of his spirit than the conqueror of a city. Proverbs 16.32. Who is the rich one? He who is happy with his lot. As it says, when you eat from the work of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Psalm 128 verse 2. You will be happy in this world and it will be well with you in the world to come. Who is honored? He who honors the created beings, as it says, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be held in little esteem. 1 Samuel 2.30. Another way of looking at the part of this quote about being happy is this. Happiness equals the amount you have divided by the amount you want. If what you have is greater than what you want, the value of rejoicing is higher. Reason number four, the joy of that which is fleeting. There's an old Jewish folk tale that goes something like this. One day, Solomon decided to humble Benaiah ben Yehoiada, his most trusted minister. He said to him, Benaiah, there is a certain ring that I want you to bring to me. I wish to wear it for Sukkot, which gives you six months to find it. 
If it exists anywhere in the world, your majesty, replied Benaiah, I will find it and bring it to you. But what makes the ring so special? It has magic powers, answered the king. If a happy man looks, on, looks at it, he becomes sad. And if a sad man looks at it, he becomes happy. Solomon knew that no such ring existed in the world, but he wished to give his minister a little taste of humility. Spring passed and then summer, and still Benaiah had no idea where he could find the ring. On the night before Sukkot, he decided to take a walk in one of the poorest quarters of Jerusalem. He passed by a merchant who had begun to set out the day's wares on a shabby carpet. Have you by any chance heard of a magic ring that makes the happy wearer forget his joy and the broken-hearted wearer forget his sorrows? Asked Benaiah. He watched the grandfather take a plain gold ring from his carpet and engrave something on it. When Benaiah read the words on the ring, his face broke out in a wide smile. That night, the entire city welcomed in the holiday of Sukkot with great festivity. Well, my friend, said Solomon, have you found what I sent you after? All the ministers laughed, and Solomon himself smiled. To everyone's surprise, Benaiah held up a small gold ring and declared, Here it is, your majesty. As soon as Solomon read the inscription, the smile vanished from his face. The jeweler had written three Hebrew letters on the gold band, Gimel, Zion, Yud, which began the words, Gam, Ze'avar. This too shall pass. At that moment, Solomon realized that all his wisdom and fabulous wealth and tremendous power were but fleeting things. For one day, he would be nothing but dust. Hmm. Why would the phrase, this too shall pass, intensify one's happiness? And finally, reason number five, the joy of a blockage being removed. In John chapters 7 through 10, Yeshua is in Jerusalem at Sukkot. His main message is this, your heart is stopped up such that you can't hear with your heart. If you could hear, you would recognize the voice of God in me. The proof that you can't hear is that you want to kill me. But there are among you those who indeed will hear the voice of God in me. It's not so much the learned or the religious authorities as it is the humble, like the man born blind, who Yeshua heals on Shabbat during Sukkot. This one humbled by the ridicule of being labeled born in sin. This lowly one has the ears to hear because he was chosen to hear, having been born blind for the reason of this public healing and witness of the Messiah. I can only imagine his joy at being able to see what he couldn't his whole life. The passage ends in chapter 10 with a moment of the second circumcision, which is circumcision of the heart. These verses indicate a division among the people caused by Yeshua, a separation evocative of circumcision of the heart. Yeshua's message speaks directly to circumcision, both literally in chapter 7, verses 21 to 24, and figuratively, inasmuch as their hearts have a blockage or an orla. Yeshua is here at the beginning of this journey with him as leader, 
both providing the surgery that is necessary at the beginning of the journey and training the flock to hear his voice, another aspect necessary for walking with him. Think back to those videos of loved ones reuniting after years apart. There's a release there, a blockage being removed. Whatever it is that has been encrusted over top of our joy is cut away, and we can experience God and his creation deeply. So ask yourself, in what other ways does Sukkot bring joy, especially when it comes to Yeshua? And how do you manage to be joyous given whatever is going on in your personal, national, or global situation? May God bless you, and may he make us all into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.